Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Cineposium Podcast, and thank you for joining us for episode 8 of season 3. To remind you how the show works, every week we invite members or collaborators of Cineposium to curate films for remote viewing. Then, we get together on this podcast and have a conversation about the film. New episodes will be published every week with various members from Symposium coming on to discuss the films of our weekly curators. This week's episode is curated by Symposium's Lee Wen Wong, joined by Reed Williams and Martin Nabarro Ramos as they discuss Dear X. Enjoy the conversation. Releasing 2018, Dear X, also titled Tada, is a Taiwanese film with a bit of romance, a bit of comedy, a bit of sadness, and a bit of music. The film is narrated by a teenager, Song Chen-xi, who's in the middle of a battle between his mother and his father's lover for his late father's insurance money. And as a critically and commercially well-received domestic drama, the story interestingly starts right off with the absence of the father, who's supposed to link everyone together. But instead, here in the story, the father is now a ghost figure that haunts his loved ones. Also notably, the Chinese title for this film in literal translation means who loved him first. As the story progresses, we as audiences are also invited to piece the clues and narrative together to see who will win the insurance money and who loved him first. In sum, the film is woven with a lot of current issues, gender, sexuality, family values, all of which I'm excited to discuss with you all in today's episode. Yes, I'm excited too. Yeah, likewise. Thanks. Thanks for uh, picking this film to present me when um, I guess I'll get started just by saying like I, I did in preparing for this episode, I really enjoyed watching the film and <clears throat> before getting into more specifics, I'll just say that and really interesting the different title um in translation i think going in not i i purposefully didn't watch the trailer i didn't want to know anything about the film and i think that paints a different picture uh before watching and so both i think are interesting titles and i think they both work but just a little slightly different it makes perhaps maybe a, a little more sense to me in my mind at least now having seen the film but just really interesting complex film with with so much that we can unpack here so with that i'll stop for now yeah, I'm curious, when you know, you mentioned the plot a little bit at the beginning, kind of in your opening, and I'd be curious too, just for people who maybe haven't seen this before, like what your kind of one or two sentence like plot synopsis of, of uh, Dear X would be. So this film is basically about a, a field that is surrounding a teenager whose teenager's mother and his teenager's father's lover, they're battling over entrance money and that he later on discovered some uh, closeted secret of his dad and also his mother and also his father's lover. And so, yeah, as the story unfolds, we see a lot of those different aspects and different layers of story from all these main figures are being presented in front of the audience. Yeah, and so uh, I, I'm just wondering what's like the gen, what was your general reaction to the film or what were you thinking about the film before heading into it? I guess um, when you initially told us about the film in our group chat, that kind of description of like a little bit of comedy and a little bit of romance and kind of like music, I think maybe you might have said too. And just like, I think I kind of got focused on those three things. So I was expecting something maybe like a little bit more like campy, I guess, and um, like uh, really over the top kind of broad comedy, which is really not actually how the film it is, is at all. Uh, so that was really interesting just to see that it is more like you mentioned in your opening, like kind of a domestic drama that that is a pretty tragic in some ways and goes in some dark places. Um, but then ultimately I felt like it had a very kind of heartfelt and um, sweet ending, 
although not like too kind of saccharine or tied up too neatly. So yeah, I think my expectations going in were definitely different from what I actually did see, but you know, in that way, it's actually nice to be surprised and, and makes for kind of a compelling watch when something is different than what you were expecting. And I guess to add on a bit to my reaction, I, I did enjoy, as I said, I did enjoy the film and um, enjoyed, you know, the as you say, the layers to the narrative and each of the characters who we uh, follow throughout the film. You know, we spend time with, with each of them and they, they all have their own sort of trajectories throughout the film. I agreed and uh, with Reed that I think my expectations uh, were in were in one place and what the film ended up being totally surprised me. Some of the uh, production qualities of the film, I, I really enjoyed how it was shot. I enjoyed the narration uh, throughout tied to the uh, animation that we that we get throughout the film. And I also really enjoyed the the way theater kind of played into some of the storytelling. I'm always interested when theater kind of becomes blended in with film and how, how that's done through production design and through editing. And I mean, editing is another thing that I think this film doesn't, hasn't, does an exceptional job at, I think, particularly in how we, we transition between flashback and present. Um, I was honestly just loving how they sort of, uh, eloquently handled those those transitions, uh, whether it be through editing or through camera moves, I guess. But I, I think that was something that I didn't expect and was really, really enjoying throughout the film. Yeah, I just want to echo that too. I, I wrote down that exact same thing. Like specifically, um, I think one of the first times I really noticed it was um, when um, Song Shenji, is that? Yeah, uh, it's, it's the sun, right? Yeah, or uh, the the male lover, like he's mm. playing the guitar, uh, and then the way it's edited and shot, we see um, the deceased father, Song Jing Yun, uh, teaching him to play the guitar, or just other moments where like the mother uh, is um, sitting in the waiting room at the hospital, and then there's like a... a a zoom out and then we see you know the, the lover uh song with the father in his final days like yeah just those little moments that are stitched together to to connect the flashbacks with what's going on presently i i really really enjoyed that too just like uh marty pointed out yeah now that you're mentioning all the shots it came to mind that there's also that shot where the mother is rushing through the streets and then a taxi comes across and she sees herself with uh, her deceased husband. And I think if I remember correctly, that's like the first shot ever that we get to see what actually is in her mind. Before that, it's always like her external performance. And so it's always, where's the money? Why, why are you stealing my husband? That type of stuff. And so, yeah, and that also is an interesting point of how this film is, uh, it's been executed on, uh, instead of focusing the spotlight on the deceased father, on the person who's struggling with his sexuality and struggling with his, um, his identity, this film is now shifting the focus on the people surrounding him. And I thought that's also very interesting and echoing what Martin was saying about theater quality. I think in a lot of the scenes, it also has this theater-like thing, especially with like uh, some scenes that just looks like farce. Like when they're pulling his son, they don't want his son to jump out of the window. And also, yeah, I think a lot of the scene with the three main characters together, it would often look like just farce. And it will be also it, It'll, it'll be also familiar and also distancing because you often see that kind of scene happening in real life, like the uh, hysterical mother or the, the rebellious son. Just to kind of add to that too, like I think, um, you know, both of what you're saying is kind of making me think of other points in the movie that do, um, you know, um, that also play on this idea of theatricality because 
uh, one of um, Jay. Is that the teenage character's name? Jay? Oh, you mean the male lover? Oh, is that Jay? Yes. Oh, that's Jay. Okay. I was looking at IMDb <laughs> to try and get all the characters sorted out before. And uh, I guess I mixed some of them up. But no, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, so the son is Sung Sheng Chi? Yes. A teenager? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, in one of his voiceovers, he talks about how his mom should have been an actor that like Hollywood like really missed out on her being an actor. And then, you know, in parallel to that, we do have uh, Jay, who is an actor as part of this theater company. And I loved how that all came together in that scene where um, Lou, is that the mother's name? Yes, yes. Where she confronts them at the theater. Uh, and she actually oh, right. is on stage. And so it is like, like you said, like, I, I think at first it took me a second to kind of get used to the really pitched up performances in those moments. But then when that happens, you kind of see how theatricality and the idea of theater and melodrama, and like you're kind of saying, farce is um, part of what the film is getting at. Totally. And I think that's a great example of like, yeah, as you say, like the sort of style of comedy that we get in this film that I was not expecting a part of me you know here's rom-com for some reason I guess I'm programmed to expect a sort of comedy but this was very much more rooted in this melodrama that have these sort of ironic situations or, or you know situations where you can kind of chuckle at but there's there's sincere drama attached to it and um, intricacies to some of what these characters are experiencing that that are very real to them. And so it's, it's a sort of mixed feeling, but um, man, I, I didn't quite put that together. And I think that's a really great point that you made Reed, in terms of that, that the mother shows up in the theater. I really, uh, I really love that point. Also side note, the, the actress for the mother, she actually started off her career and is very famously known for her theater performances. So she came to like the TV film industry from her, theatrical roots and yeah I thought that that was also very interesting and that uh, I was telling you guys about this film is a bit of rom and a bit of com so I intentionally sliced that two out it's like it's not rom-com it's rom and com but yeah and also uh, yeah I think it's trying to use a comedic tone to soften the blow of the issue that they're trying to dealing with and I'm most I'm always intrigued by how people or filmmakers are trying to use comedy to convey certain tough or more serious issues they're trying to do it in a more lighthearted tone and yeah I just want to hear what you think about like the use of comedy or what are some other examples of comedy that you think uh, well edu executed well of difficult topics. Yeah, this is, that's really fitting you ask that question. It ties in a little bit with uh, last week's episode that I did with Eric about the kid, just to plug that little shameless plug for a, another episode. But, you know, we talked a lot about how uh, Charlie Chaplin blended drama and comedy in that film and um, how just in his career in general, you know, his, he, his films are comedies, but oftentimes they're dealing with class and labor. And like you said, these really heavy issues that are difficult to talk about. And when directors and filmmakers and writers find a way to blend those two things to make those issues a little more palatable and uh, give people kind of an, a cathartic experience, you may be uh, experience these these kind of tough things uh, is always uh, really impressive because it just seems like a really hard thing to do. Totally agree. And, and for me, I think one uh, really great way that this film and the filmmakers handle uh, sort of, you know, tiptoeing that line is through the animation. Um, uh, so one memorable moment that I, I honestly, I think I kind of cackled, I forget at what point it happens in the film, but it's a, at one point when the son and mother are having this confrontation on the street and she's, you know, she's shouting and she's approaching him and sort of, 
I forget exactly what she says, but what I remember distinctly is the animation where in which we kind of get this this cut to like a closer like medium from a wide shot and he he gets like this animated like sword in his hand and it's it's almost like okay i'm getting ready for battle my mom's like crossing the boundary into my personal space and threatening me or whatever you know shouting at me and i'm like i'm i'm ready for battle here and it's i think that's a, a funny familiar feeling because kids i think like get we get in this sort of attitude with parents when we're young occasionally in which we feel like you know uh, gutsy to sort of stand up to them and, and talk back and, you know, um, have this sort of exchange. And um, I think that was a really, a really uh, gentle way to add some lightheartedness to a moment that otherwise is, you know, uh, dramatic. But, you know, I guess in a way also there's this scene in general, it, it's a bit comical to kind of watch unfold. But if you're in it, it's not the funniest thing. So it's, it's an interesting kind of complexity there. But um one other thing I wanted to mention that perhaps we can get to later, Lee I'm not sure if you plan on it already, but as I'm talking about the animation, I'm remembering another point I thought was really interesting was, if I remember correctly, they're not translated. And often we get we get certain um, animated like words, I think. I'm not sure which language that is, but I don't remember them being translated. And I thought that was also really, uh, really interesting. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that too. I had specifically written that down, so I'm really glad you brought it up, Martin. Yeah. Like the instance I'm thinking of is when we see the character for Mistress, and then like they change, like a line changes, it moves to another character, and then it's male lover. But you're right, like it's not. I don't think it is exactly translated for us. And I wanted to kind of ask Lee Win about, like, it seems like they're really playing with language there too, and like using language to comedic effects so yeah i'm really glad you brought that up exactly I, I that wanted to that. ask uh, lee win about that yeah exactly that and these i mean just the animation in general seems so tied to this narrator and their perspective and often moments of i i think simultaneously offering us a bit of of levity amidst all the the drama going on and so i, I thought that was really interesting okay so i'm going to do the explanation so uh because the teenager he's referring to his mom as mistress and also the male lover as male lover and so the reason he's referring his mother as mistress is that in Chinese the term we use to call people mistress literal translation is little three so like it's a third party it's like little three and that that character of three is actually the middle character of his mother's name so he would be like uh, funnily referring like my mother is little three it also means like her name and also reference to the mistress the term and also uh, when he's talking about the male lover it's the term is little Wong so it's actually the same character as my last name is little Wong that's usually referring like male mistress and that little Wong is coincidentally Little Wong and Little Three only has one, they're different, is like a one stick within the two. So one would be like this, this would be the three, and this would be the Wong. So there would be one in the middle, and the kid is also making joke that, ah, perhaps the male lover is Little Wong because he has a dick more than my mom. So there will be like one stick of uh, word, in that word, yes. I'm, tr I'm struggling to describe that, but yeah, that's, that's the joke he's trying to do. It's like calling his mother like three and Wong and there's the slight difference is only the dick. And also he's, yeah, because yesterday I was rewatching it with English subtitle because I was afraid that they would, something would be lost in translation. And then I thought, hmm, possibly they won't catch it. And then I won't have to explain this but of course, you two are the Clippers. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. it was great. No, that makes so much more sense to me now. Just uh, because, yeah, if you don't, if you're not familiar with um, Mandarin, right, yes. uh, then then that might be lost on you. Like, you know, I think we picked up there's like something funny going on, but that, I, you know, I love how you explain that just um, uh, how it sort of deconstructs those two characters because I do feel like uh, something else I was curious to hear both of your thoughts on is just how this film does 
seem like it is kind of deconstructing um, social and cultural perceptions about, um, you know, gay men or like single uh, women um, and, and perhaps like maybe closer to middle-aged women too. I don't know. It seems like, you know, he calls her auntie in the film at certain points, which she kind of takes umbrage with. So, you know, I love how you explained how they use those illustrations to play with language because I feel like they are trying to um, comment on some of these uh, social and cultural uh, things as well, which, you know, I'd, I'd definitely be curious, curious to hear more of your thoughts on. Yes, I'm, like in this film, the main fascination I had is there, um, is the film is shedding light on middle-aged women, that they're pointing out the one that's being left behind and even like deserted and they're trying to pinpoint her point of view but also not making her too sympathetic sympathetic and also they're trying to like the characters within this film they're both trying to deconstruct them but also they're slightly trying to disrupt them also like making them hard to love but also you're looking at a lot of things in multifacets. And yeah, I thought it's very interesting to see also like the contrast of two mothers, the Jie's mother and also the teenage boy's mother. And also to see how in this type of situation, no one, no one's actually at fault, but no one's also, no one is also the, the righteous party. And that it's like what the, teenager was saying like who will win this game who will win this and then he said I think the winner is the chicken chops because that kind of reunites like reconcile the relationship he and his mother had and yeah I thought that there what Reed said it's a lot of layer to tackle but it's also interesting just to think about how a gay man is being portrayed and how unrequited love or reunited love within the LGBT com community or the other parties involved with a LGBT member. It's like the the wife, she, she, of course she didn't know the man he was, the man she was marrying was intending to marry her just for like a social profile. Yeah, I think something that I was, spending a lot of time focusing on throughout the film was you know word, words themes uh i was trying to pay attention to you know what i was noticing throughout and <clears throat> i think uh a couple that stood out were you know uh the themes of of greed as well as grief and i think in getting to this point or the, these things that you're bringing up reed i think ultimately what what i'm thinking about is just that each of these characters are misunderstood and you know in watching the film I, I had moments with each of them where I was incredibly frustrated and you know just found myself like just I don't know just upset and later on with each of them find myself on the verge of tears and so um, I think ultimately uh, it, it came to this sort of awareness of you know whether someone's your your enemy or not it, it, i think finding this point of understanding is uh, can be can be rewarding and i think that's that's what i got out of you know the um representation here and um you know i i think words like a word like respect is thrown around a lot and i think even in in my own um you know uh up cultural upbringing i think that's a that's also a really important thing that's that's kind of uh put upon you a, as a kid and maybe that's that's attached to that that feeling of of understanding someone is is kind of like respecting them but um i don't know i think i think i'm still it's something i'm still sort of thinking about in terms of how i how i feel about each of these characters but um i i totally i totally felt that the sort of i don't know if it's bittersweet that i would as i would call the ending but i think that's ultimately where I kind of left off, if that makes sense. I think there's this poignant feeling of just like understanding where everyone's coming from and appreciative of the fact that there can be this sort of civil behavior between them. Yeah, I think uh, 
even though it's like a cliche for melodrama or comedy, it's that the reconciliation at the end. But I think this film, it, it's also trying to, you don't necessarily agree with their point of view, but then you're trying to understand and to be close to them. It's like through the different layers of their memories, you're trying to keep yourself as close to the characters as possible. And like Martin was saying on the verge of tears, I think there's one scene that stuck with me is that where the the father, he's he's just complaining that I might as well just die because I'm I'm now like falling out of my hair and I might as well just die. And then Jie, he just grabbed him towards the window and not the window, he grabbed him towards the mirror and you think he's going to do something dangerous, but then he starts cutting his hair and he's trying to do this, like he's trying to be cute, but also he's trying to like say, I'll just, I just want to see which of us would be ha uh, more handsome if we're like, bald. And I think that was like what Martin would say, it's like the bittersweetness of he's trying to cover his sadness, but he's also trying to do it in a cute way that not to make his, uh, not to make his lover feel, uh, he wants to make him feel less guilty. And yeah, I thought it's just the, I guess it's what the general mission of film does is that they want us to be as close to these characters and to think in their shoes and to just get uh, to nurture the ability of empathize. Yeah, that's like, I'm now throwing this generalization, but <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm glad you both are talking specifically about the characters because a, a question I was asking myself throughout watching the film and one I'm curious, I want to ask both of you now too is uh, who is the protagonist of Dear Eggs? Or is there not just one protagonist or is it are they all equal um yeah that was something i was sort of going back and forth on in my mind last night so i'm, I'm curious to hear what you both think. why do i feel like i'm like being tested right now <laughs> no like i said i was i don't know quite what to think about either so because i guess i'll just say at first i was like oh uh you know the teenage son uh is the protagonist because you know we have his voiceover narration. We have the illustrations that are kind of presumably coming from his point of view. Um, but then also it, you know, just kind of when I thought that was the case, then the perspective shifts a little bit and the story focuses more on Jay or then it focuses more on uh, Liu. So yeah, but then, you know, at, kind of towards the end, we do hear, we start to hear the voiceover narration again. We start seeing some of the illustrations again. Um, so, yeah, I just, I wasn't quite sure what to make of that myself, like whether there was one central protagonist or really whether this is just a story about the three of them. Uh, I think I agree with that. I think I think it is that sort of thing where it transitions throughout the narrative. Um, because I've, I kind of felt, I think, confused as well and during the watch in, 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 considering, in considering this, maybe not so consciously, but uh, I, I remember the feeling I had. And, you know, because, yeah, we get, the, we get the narration from the sun, and yet I've, I almost felt like we got less moments of him on screen that felt very internal, you know what I mean? And so it was like... I, I felt almost more attached to the other two. Uh, although there was this feeling of aligning perspective with the sun as like, well, you know, we're watching these two sides feud, which I guess is, you know, I guess the position of the film that we get. But um, yeah, it kind of feels like, um, it kind of feels like that, that narrative in Psycho in which like, you know, the protagonist that we have at the start of the film dies very early and then it shifts over to someone else and then, a new person comes in and we start following them and it does feel like this other sort of um path that takes these transitions and i mean i personally am all for it i really enjoyed that that opportunity to spend so much time with these characters and really understand them internally each of them and ultimately i think it allowed for a much more rich um experience in in watching the film yeah i guess uh 
one of the film's endeavor to incorporate more of the sun is by using him as the narrator is that even though we see more on-screen moments with the mother and also the male lover but it is overall it's uh it's told through the voice of the son so this might as well just be his uh, memory or his re uh re retelling of a moment in his life but it is uh, this entire story is also like a piece of the son in my opinion it's like he's telling this story it's like in the end you're also kind of fractured by is he talking to the therapist or is he just talking telling this story again or it could possibly this entire film is one of his sessions within his therapy session and I thought that it's like the narrator issue is also like a constant concern when I was watching the film totally had that same thought Um, you reminded me when I, I considered because of the way certain scenes play out, it, it gives this sense that he's talking to his therapist, um, you know, and towards the end, sort of calling them a fraud. It, uh, it t- does kind of, I'm not sure if it solidifies that possibility, but I mean, it does have that feeling, but um, also very much had the feeling that of this as a sort of like different style film diary, you know, like this sort of segments at, that are not linear it feels like these different moments that are dated within his own film diary in terms of coming to terms with everything that he's been experiencing so um yeah i don't know what to how to how to describe it best i guess but it, it, it has feelings of of this of him you know having these thoughts on on you know what he he does know or, or what he knows as he learns it and them being sort of added upon his story as he's telling it. So a really interesting um, narrative that we get for sure. One other thing I noticed just in preparation for our podcast was uh, just looking at the directors, uh, which was co-directed, it looks like, from Kidding Sue and uh, Mag Sue. Um, and I think I saw that Kidding, I think that's his... Um, professional work name. I don't think that's his actual name, but uh, it looks like he was a music video director or had experience working with like um, working with musicians and directing music videos. (laughs) Um, And, you know, that just made me think of kind of this great tradition in film of music video directors becoming feature film directors like, you know, David Fincher and Spike Jones and Michelle Gondry and really just some of like my personal favorites. Um, you know, they start doing music videos and then transition into feature film directing. And I think some of that work from directing music videos, you can see in their features as well, just a really sort of creative way to use the visuals to tell the story, like the editing we were talking about. I always feel like they have a great eye for just color too, like the colors usually pop. And yeah, just in general, just like a kind of a, they find a really fun, economical, eye-catching way to tell a story. And I definitely saw that was the case there. And and it looks like, um, you know, this is their debut film. So I'm hoping that from here, I, you know, you mentioned Lewin that this was commercially and critically successful. So hopefully that means that um, they'll have the opportunity to make other films because, you know, if this is just the first one, then, then I could see, you know, definitely a lot of potential in, in their career. Yeah, now that you mentioned that, because uh, Mag, she, she's actually uh, very, very famously known for a lot of TV dramas because she's a writer and she's also theaters and she's done a lot like rom-com and also romance melodrama type of tv shows and this is i think this is actually one of her few film directions but mostly she wrote for tv films and those are usually great it's like her name is one of the selling points i guess yeah but yeah what you mentioned about the 
musical quality to the film it all it's also it's also very interesting <laughs> another director that came to mind i wanted to add to your list read was mary lambert who um directs uh, pet cemetery i know she was um <clears throat> Uh, the original Pet Cemetery, excuse me. Uh, she was, um, I can't recall the music videos she did. I think she did one with Madonna. Um, but anyways, absolutely, I think that sort of background um, can bring a sort of skill set with them to convey uh, some of the themes that are um, in the film through these, through through camera work, through sound, through lighting, which I think this film was another exceptionally well uh done area was its lighting i think tied to its editing and and back and forth between flashbacks uh, and I, I think yeah this was um that evocative feeling comes about um for some reason so well with with these filmmakers I, I mean another plug for the podcast is going back to the halloween episodes when we were talking about rob's uh rob zombie and you know uh i mean Say what you will about Rob Zombie, but I mean, you know, the his Halloween films do have this very uh, unique and artistic um, sensibility to them. They're very uh, specifically uh, colored in certain ways, and each scene, each frame has its own feeling. And um, I think that's certainly something that we get with this film, and was very enjoyable. I think I, it was it was just a pleasure to kind of experience what the filmmakers wanted me to feel. And, and I think that was something that I really enjoyed with this film for sure. Oh, on another note, because I was also thinking what you thought about uh, like what Reed said, middle-aged woman as a center point of films. It's like, I think last month I was in a phase of watching elderly rom-coms like the book club that kind of films I was very into like middle age to older age women as the center of a film and I was thinking what you thought uh, of the execution within this film or just generally some of the films that highlights middle aged women or even single older age women well yeah you know I mentioned earlier how um, she gets called auntie a lot which I think is kind of like in deference to sort of older, but not like middle-aged, right? I guess like you're saying, like not quite like elderly, but but middle-aged. Um, and yeah, that was one thing I was kind of curious just to, to learn more about because then later uh, when Jay's mother is talking with her and she thinks that she is there dating, you know, she's like, it's okay if you're a little older, like, it's fine, you know, that's, I don't even care about that. So yeah, I was just curious to learn a little bit more about, like, the cultural context behind that. Like, is it just, if you are, like, a, in particular, too, like, a single, like, kind of middle-aged woman um, in Taiwan, is that kind of a lower social strata, I guess, than, than others? And it is that kind of where why we see some of that in the film? I guess it would be, I guess in East Asian countries that um, women usually have this age crisis where they don't want to be referred as older or they don't want to be called as uh, an older sister or auntie or even like when women are past 30, there will be in like a 30 crisis, like I'm not going to be 30 or even in universities. When me and my friends were in our junior year or senior, year, we'll be like, we're the old people on campus now. Like they're the young girls and people and boys are like young girls instead of us. I guess that's a prevalent, uh, is a prevalent nerve nerve-wracking thing for East Asian women and I guess it is also kind of um, being played into the film it's like when they were uh, when Jie he wants to also add a layer of attack to the mother he would say can you head out auntie you'll use that kind of terms yeah this this conversation I think reminds me of well I think about a couple of things first I wanted to mention that um the uh, 
it, I, I'm kind of reminded of the film Saving Face, um, directed by Alice Wu, I believe, who um, totally, there's the part of the story is, um, I'm trying to remember, I think it was Joan Chen's character. Yeah. yeah. So so that's another, you know, instance in which we, we see this middle-aged woman sort of, you know, dating again. And um, similarly, well, I guess not similarly, but um, there's this, there's this, you know, age gap between her and um, a, and a lover that comes, um, that's revealed later on in the film. And, and it's this secret that she's keeping, right? And I think that there's this, there's something tied to the traditional mindset of some cultures, you know, in which it's, in my opinion, at least, um, pretty accurate to the kinds of emotions from, from that perspective, again, that, uh, that can be experienced because we, we do get these scenes in which she's confused as to why she, her husband seems to be upset with her. And she feels like that's, you know, it's headed toward, towards the end and her coworkers telling her to be more aggressive, you know, um, sexually to, to, to be more, uh, willing and adventurous and, um, there's, there's a lot to think about there, I think, um, you know, whether or not that's, that's okay. But the fact that she feels put in that position, I think is, uh, in terms of representation of that sort of experience, I think they do a great job with it. It's fun to hear about your, uh, middle-aged kind of rom-com rabbit hole. Lee Wynn, I know you mentioned like other films that come to mind that I would fall into that bucket. And I guess, uh, um, I recently heard a, a podcast all about like a Nancy Myers and how, you know, as she um, got older, she wrote like something's got to give or wrote and directed something's got to give and it's complicated, which I think definitely would fall into that. And then there's like um, Enough Said, the Nicole Hollis Center film with James Gandolfini and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. So, you know, there definitely are films out there that cover that experience. Um, probably not as many as there should be, but um, it is definitely kind of its own subgenre and adds a interesting layer to the rom-com genre in general, just because they are usually so youth focused. Yeah, actually like one of the, the films that was in my uh, elderly rom-com rabbit hole was Something's Gotta Give and that you can, especially what I said about the book club, those women are, their characters are like in their 70s or towards late 60s and they're actually portraying them in youthful lights. It's like, uh, I think it's Jane Fonda. She's about in her 70s and she's also seeking out for love and she's all, and they're all facing uh, each of their own respective um crisis not on and the film sheds lights yeah and the film sheds lights beyond their age crisis but that they're now just looking them as individuals it's uh their age is just a backdrop but not the primary focus and which i thought was very uh enticing because it was very because usually in those type of films the, like the family struggles or the their age would often be a big topic but now in those films or here in this film her age isn't the main focus but is actually talking about because at first you would think about her being a middle-aged woman and oh they're always like that but then when she was in the therapy session she was asking the therapist that was that real did he ever love me that was like a universal yearning for perhaps all women or all men or every human being. They just want to know if they've ever been loved, that type of, yeah. And I also that scene in the taxi is also giving the audience a sense of she was young before she wasn't always like this. And I thought it's, yeah, interesting. Again, I'm using the word interesting, but I guess today we covered even more than I was thinking about, <laughs> like the theatrical qualities and also how like a music video director, which I didn't notice actually. And yeah, I thought those are really interesting points and like research questions if we're one day we want to look into those. And yeah, I guess also 
a part of me wanting to uh, curate this film is that I want to highlight a Taiwanese film that is more contemporary and it's more fun to watch instead of because I was actually looking at Letterboxd and I was sorting it with popularity of films made in Taiwan and I think most of the films on page one is like the 80s new Taiwan cinema film or like Ho Xian, Cai Mingyang, those type of art house film and so this week I just thought I need to highlight some film that is actually contemporary and also comedy and fun. And it's actually, because those new Taiwan cinema, it's a bit far-fetched for the majority of Taiwanese audience. So it did great in the world beyond Taiwan, but within Taiwan, it's, it's, it did great, but not like exceptionally great. So I, but this, like this from Dear X, it was, really well received and it was nominated and won numerous awards at the Golden Horse Awards, which is like a Chinese uh, Oscar awards. And I thought that was a important thing I thought I should do as like a curator of this podcast. Oh yeah, and also because this is also like a side note that when I was trying to look up a lot of the films that I was uh, aiming to curate, the availability and the streaming difficulties made it hard to curate film because I would want to have Taiwanese film titles that people can easily get access of. But then the easier ones that can get access to are like the more archaic art house film. And I thought that could also be a uh, emerging, uh, that may also be a emerging problem of the not that widespread ability of more contemporary Taiwanese film and yeah but I'm very glad that I got at least two of my cohorts to watch this film and to just also experience what a modern Taiwanese moviegoer would watch like this yeah because Taiwanese it because Taiwan produced a lot of melodrama domestic dramas and this is like one of its uh, best words in recent year. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I actually did wonder to myself um, if this was so successful, you know, why it didn't necessarily cross over to um, Western audiences as much. Like, and I guess I'm just going by myself for this um, as far as like, I don't remember anybody really covering this in 2018. And then, which is kind of interesting because it was picked up by Netflix. Um, like it has the Netflix film logo on it. So um, it is kind of makes you wonder, like you're bringing up like Western perceptions of Taiwanese film are more about like the slow cinema, like you mentioned. and. And so, but the, yeah, just to hear that also that stuff isn't necessarily what's popular in Taiwan is just, yeah, I, I didn't realize that, but it's, it's really fun to learn about just, <laughs> so I, yeah, I'm glad I got the chance to watch something that is more, you know, something general audiences would actually watch as a, as opposed to, um, you know, uh, Uncle Boomy or something like that, I guess, so yeah. Yeah, plugging in another slight promotion is that a, another LGBTQ film which did great in Taiwan this year called uh, Your Name Engraved Herein. And I didn't get the chance to watch it because I came right back to the States, but I heard great things about it and it's also being picked up by Netflix. So it should be internationally distributed on December 23rd. I think yesterday I just saw this news and I thought, it's great. So. Uh, so is Netflix, have you noticed, are they really the main US distributor that's picking up these more mainstream titles and like bringing them to a Western audience? Are there other companies doing that at all or is it mostly Netflix? I guess, um, there's actually quite a portion of HBO because HBO also have like an HBO Asia and they'll be working with, uh, I think 
other places also, but in Taiwan, they are making it, they are co-producing a lot of TV series, especially, and those did well also, I think. I'm now, because I now have the Chinese titles in mind, but I think HBO is also trying to co-produce them with more local filmmakers, but I think Netflix usually they just acquire the distribution right and then they'll make it seems like it's the Netflix original. But <laughs> but yeah, that's also an interesting thing to know because like in Taiwan, we only have Netflix. We don't have HBO, we don't have Hulu, we don't have, I don't think we have Amazon Prime. So like coming to the States, the streaming availability, availability was also a surprise to me that there's so many options. But in, so in Taiwan, a lot of the American titles or Western titles, that is, uh, that is a popular discussion topics are the ones that are being distributed on Netflix. For example, recently in Taiwan, they will be talking about The Crown and they will be talking about uh, a lot of Korean dramas that are distributed on Netflix. So yeah, that's also interesting since that's the only platform. So a lot of the Taiwanese audience uh, exposure to Western TV dramas are the ones that normally gets on Netflix. It's fascinating stuff. And I mean, I, I just want to echo too that I really enjoyed watching something contemporary like this um, because I, I do think they had some fantastic uh, production work in general that I think um, it's, it's great to kind of see that level of, of, of craft and execution um, coming from Taiwan because, I mean, it's it's great to put attention to what's being made now to the current filmmakers and to what audiences out there are um, are experiencing right now too. So it's, uh, it's really exciting to bring that element to this podcast because... I think we really get some some great diversity in our programming, and I mean, I guess it's just a um, a humble brag for us in our podcast. I think we um we we get a really great range of of films to watch and talk about. So I think um, great work we went with selecting this film. I guess that'll be it. <laughs> That's it for our show this week. Thank you for listening and for your support. Please subscribe to the show on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at Cineposium and on Twitter at Cposium to keep up with our updates and to keep in communication with us. Until next week, take care, everyone.